0: Hey there, welcome to Volts. I'm your host, David Roberts. Lots of people these days feel a deep scorn and antipathy toward the U.S. Senate, one of the most dysfunctional and ridiculous legislative bodies in the world. I very much include myself in that number. But few people have done as much to earn their antipathy as Adam Gentleson, who worked in the bowels of the Senate as Deputy Chief of Staff. For Democratic Majority Leader Harry Reid from 2011 to 2016, the fateful final years of Obama's uh, two terms. Gentleson got an up close and personal look at all the ways that the rules of the Senate are stacked against reformers, especially the filibuster. He shared what he learned in a new book that came out earlier this year Kill Switch The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy. I know that this newsletter is supposed to be about clean energy, and I have not forgotten that, I promise, but U.S. democracy is falling apart around us, and it's got me rather preoccupied. So I thought it would be nice to talk to Jentleson, uh, not so much about the Senate's ugly past, although we will touch on that a little bit, as much as its current politics. What's going on there today, and what can we expect? Basically, I want him to explain Joe Manchin to me. So with that, welcome to Volts, Adam.
1: Thank you so much. It's great to be here.
0: So as we speak, uh, just a few minutes ago, we found out that the Senate Republicans are, in fact, expected to filibuster the creation of a commission to investigate the January 6th insurrection. Um, This seems like a straightforwardly reactionary (laughs) move. Um, you know, as I look back on the last few uses of the filibuster, they seem straightforwardly reactionary. You go back a little further to the 70s, 60s, and 70s, it was used in pretty straightforwardly reactionary uh, uh, purposes. Then, is it, has the filibuster always been a straightforwardly reactionary tool? Or is there anything that a Democrat could point to and say, look, it works for us too, or look, there are reasons, there are reasons for us to support it ongoing. Has it ever worked for Democrats?
1: Well, um, it's, it's, I'm going to give you a yes and no answer there. I think, (laughs) um, the filibuster was reactionary, um, from the very beginning. Um, it was conceived of as a, as a reactionary tool. It was not supposed to exist. Um, it didn't exist for the first half century or so of the Senate's existence, um, and came into existence, you know, largely to empower uh, not vulnerable minorities from and then protect them from, you know, being trampled by the mob, um, but rather to increase the power of already powerful minorities who uh, wanted to have even more power, and in most cases to stop the march of progress. Um, the, the number one um, you know, powerful minority that the filibuster was in- invented in many ways to protect was slaveholders in in the antebellum uh, period. So, and and then you know, we we could talk about this more, but it, it you know it, it was first just this talking filibuster. There was no supermajority threshold. I think something that's really important to understand that is easy to to get lost because of sort of our bias towards the new is that the Senate was a majority rule body. For most of its existence, for two hundred plus years, um, and really only in, until recently did it was really only recently that the supermajority threshold, this idea that things need sixty votes to pass, started to uh, become frequently used at all. Um, so all that is to say that it was reactionary in its invention. Um, so, so is it know, is it
0: fair to say that all this stuff about protecting the rights of the minority and ensuring the that small states have a voice and all that, all, all that is sort of reverse engineered, <laughs> isn't it? Yes. I mean, the, the I mean, filibuster a lot of it, preceded that st- those rationales.
1: That's right. I mean, a lot of it is just straight up bullshit, but <laughs> some of it is is linked to a grain of truth. I mean, you know, it is true that the, the framers wanted the Senate to be one of the checks that they put in place to protect from untrammeled majority rule. Um, but it was the existence of the Senate that was supposed to be a protection against untrammeled majority yeah, it's rule. It's already right? minoritarian the, in its It's very already minoritarian structure. in its... Exactly. It's it's you know. First of all, the decision to have a bicameral legislature instead of a unicameral legislature was one of these checks. Um, that you know, having three branches of government that act as checks on each other was another one of the checks. Um, and then the Senate itself and its anti-democratic structure, having every state get to um, get the same number of senators, um, was another check. And then. Other ones like having senators be elected to longer terms, you know, six years instead of two and having a higher age requirement and having them be responsive to a broader statewide constituency instead of just a district. These were all the ways in which the Senate was supposed to, you know, play this. People talk about it as a cooling saucer. Um, So when people talk about protecting the minority, you know, they're linking back to this this grain of truth. Um, But, you know, as you say. It was never supposed to be as anti-democratic as it is now, and what people are talking about today is a entirely different vision of the Senate. It is a vision where the minority has a veto over the majority, which is not what the framers intended at all. Um, so, so I just wanted to say, you know, so it, it, this this is the way in which it's reactionary. It is it has is, um, been used for these purposes. It has primarily been um, a weapon to preserve white supremacy. Um, it has occasionally come in, in use for progressives and for uh, Democrats. Um, one of the most famous filibusters was an anti-war filibuster in 1917 um, that actually led to the creation of the rule that is now the rule that imposes a supermajority threshold. Um, but if you look at it on balance, there's just no um, comparison. It has always been a tool that is far more powerful and has had far more effect For the right, than for the left. Yeah, I sometimes Um, hear Democrats. That's just the nature of the thing. Sometimes I
0: sometimes hear Democrats say, "Well, there was that one time George W. Bush wanted to drill in Anwar, right?" And uh, and the Mm -hmm. Democratic Senate filibustered that. So really, it helps everyone. (laughs) And that just
1: I mean, you can you can pick out you know a few examples over several dozen years. I mean, I I, sometimes an article pops up by someone defending the filibuster, and they all go the same way, which is you know the democrats should remember that the filibuster helps them here's one example and there are many others yes there are there three more yeah <laughs> yeah exactly you know they usually can't even get to 3 to make a pattern i mean it's you know it, it's it's just there's no question that it and, and here the other thing is if you if you pull that thread you know and you start talking looking at it from a structural perspective some of these things don't even pan out like for instance um in in 1969 1970 there was an actual real effort to get rid of the Electoral College that was very nearly successful. Oh, wow. For for, um, for the
0: same reasons that, that we hate it today or <laughs> for, for different basically, reasons?
1: Basically, I mean, it was slightly different. I mean, it, it was, it was you know, I mean, look, we, we should, it, no president since 1888, between 1888 and 2000, you know, no president ever got elected winning, you know, the Electoral College but not winning the popular vote. Um, and then in, in 1968, they sort of had a brush with, Um, the dangerous potential of the Electoral College. You know, so this whole, all through the 20th century, the Electoral College was basically an afterthought because whoever won the popular vote always won the Electoral College. And it was like, oh, you know, what's the margin? It's interesting, but it didn't really factor in um, to people's calculations as much as it does today. Um, Landslide elections were a lot more common back then because partisanship was looser, you know, all these things. So in 1968, George Wallace ran as an independent and he got a surprisingly large share of the vote. And he came very close to denying either Nixon or Humphrey an electoral college majority. And so, after the 1960 election, both Republicans and Democrats were like, "Well, shit, we shouldn't do that again. We need to make sure um, that Wallace can't uh, get momentum." And so, there was a bipartisan effort to get rid of the electoral college. I mean, people forget, but you know, Nixon beat Humphrey by I think it was 0.7 percent percentage points. Um, it was a very close election and Wallace almost spoiled it. So, um, Evan or uh, not Evan by Birch by uh, father of Evan led an effort to, um, pass a constitutional amendment to get rid of the electoral college. And this was at a time when constitutional amendments actually used to pass. Um, they had just passed the 25th amendment, um, a few years earlier and, and Birch by had led that effort. So this was actually a thing that happened. Um, he, he had about 30 states that were ready to ratify it. If it had passed, it passed the House overwhelmingly. Um, It came to the Senate. Uh, He appeared to have the votes to pass the amendment on a two-thirds basis, Um, but it was filibustered. It's a little complicated because you already needed two-thirds to pass this, because it was a constitutional amendment, so the filibuster didn't necessarily raise the threshold for the number of votes that it required to pass this constitutional amendment to get rid of the electoral college, but it did complicate the situation and sort of threw a monkey wrench into it that eventually managed to be the thing that denied by the number of votes he needed. So all that is to say, if the filibuster hadn't existed, you know, you talk about George Bush and Anwar in in you know the early aughts if the filibuster hadn't existed we probably would have gotten rid of the electoral college in 1970 and george bush would never have been president so like that it's there there is i know that was a long lead up but that's there's your there's your punchline but but i mean this is the point right is that structurally it is a tool that advantages conservatives over liberals and progressives it is a tool that makes it easier to stop things and we are the side that by and large is the side that is more invested in passing big changes. Um, and so that's that's why it benefits them more than us.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to talk more about the history sometime, it, it, especially the some of the stories you tell about, you know, blocking civil rights bills. And one of the things, you, you know, you say in the book that I think is not popularly appreciated, but that the, the U.S. people, Americans, were ready for civil rights way before any laws got passed because they kept getting filibustered. Like there was majority support in America to move ahead on civil rights long before politically we were capable of actually doing it. And that's, you know, people look to things that happen, I think, uh, in history more than they look at things that didn't happen. But if you put on the lens of things that didn't happen and look through American history, it is uh, tragedy after tragedy. And many of them have the the filibuster at the root of it.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it, we, we like to tell ourselves this this narrative that, you know, perhaps there was a reason we didn't pass civil rights until 1964. Maybe the country wasn't ready for it. You know, um, Everett Dirksen, the Republican leader at the time, gave this famous speech saying, you know, strong, you know, paraphrasing Victor Hugo and saying stronger than and the arm, any army is is an idea whose time has come, you know. But the thing was, America was ready to pass civil rights decades before they did. You know, Gallup had it poll had anti poll tax bills and anti lynching laws polling in the sixty and seventy percent range, as early as nineteen thirties and nineteen forties. Um, th- there were actual bills that were passing the House that came over to the Senate that had majority support in the Senate. They had presidents of both parties ready to sign them in the nineteen twenties, thirties, and forties. And the only reason these civil rights bills didn't pass. In the 1920s and 30s and 40s was because of the filibuster. So, you know, if you step back and contemplate the amount of human suffering that was caused by this 30-year delay, um, it's it's staggering to think about, and it, and it makes you a little bit, you know, less sanguine about um, the delay that the filibuster has imposed. Yeah,
0: no kidding. Well, let's talk about um, the current mess. So, you uh, you know, those of us who uh, lived through the Obama years uh, have it seared on our memory that <laughs> that he sort of legendarily had a couple of years, not even really two full years of, of majorities in both houses of Congress, and then lost the Senate, and then Mitch McConnell decided – well, didn't decide, decided <laughs> like, before he ever took office – just to filibuster literally everything just – to filibuster as a matter of course, to filibuster everything. And thus, um, you know, Obama came into office on this wave of hope and it's a new world and we're turning the page and we're going to do big things. And he wanted to be a historic Reagan-esque president and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And instead, he was pretty effectively bottled up, pretty effectively contained to a pre, you know, modest presidency and um, and Democrats got punished, got their asses kicked at the ballot box because, as Mitch McConnell cannily perceived, if they can't get anything done, the public doesn't know it's the filibuster. <laughs> they don't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. They barely know anything. All they see is a bunch of fighting and finger pointing and nothing happening. And they blame whoever is in charge. And so they blame Dems. And so basically McConnell hold off what is, if you can overlook the the evil of it, a really incredibly savvy and effective strategy against Obama. And when this year, or last year, Biden came in with majorities in both houses, every Democrat who took to a microphone (laughs) assured us, we remember what happened to Obama. We are not going to let that happen again. We cannot waste time. We know that the only reason people will um, vote for us in 2022 or 2024 is if we do things for them, they're not going to care about process. So we're not going to let this happen again. And then they sort of passed the COVID relief bill, you know, through reconciliation and Manchin voted for it. And it kind of seemed like, oh my God, maybe they did learn the lesson. Maybe they are just going to start Doing stuff. And then, you know, we drove into the mud pit. And here we are (laughs) in the mud pit doing exactly, to a first approximation, exactly what happened last time, which is Republicans wasting time on bad faith negotiations and just running out the clock. And then in the end, blocking everything anyway. So. Did Democrats learn that lesson? Are we replaying this whole thing all over again? I mean, sh- I've heard Schumer say so many times now, like we won't let that happen, but it seems to be happening. So, how do we square that circle? Is 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 it happening all over again, or am I being too pessimistic?
1: I I think the jury's out. Um, you know, it's it's hard to unlearn lessons, right? And there's reasons that 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 they got. You know the time ran out on Democrats in two thousand nine, and, and that they got played the way that they did. It's, you know, it, it's hard um, to change some of the fundamental things about way the way business is done in Washington. Um, it's hard to reorient senators away from the desire to try to work with Republicans. You know, it's it's partially from for noble reasons and partially because they're scared and they they like having bipartisan cover. It makes them easy to easier for them to do stuff, and they're often willing to trade away. A lot of good, you know, policy for that political cover. So I think, you know, you're you're right. And look, if you look at the the metrics, um, you could argue that we're behind the pace of 2009 right now. Um, sorry, <laughs> but it's true. You know, look, I mean, Biden's approval rating is a lot lower than Obama's was at this time in 2009. Obama was in the 60s, and Biden is, you know, somewhere in the low 50s. Um, that's not Biden's fault necessarily. It's we're in a more polarized time. Um, he's certainly higher than Trump was, but that's not you know super great territory to be in. You can easily see how that would slip into the forties by the time the midterms roll around. Um, we they passed the American Rescue Plan, but by this time in two thousand nine, they had already passed the uh, American the stimulus bill and the Lilly Ledbetter Act, and a bunch of other bills. They'd passed more bills by this time in 2009 than Democrats have now. So, you know, I think there's there's reason to be concerned. Um, you could see a very rapid ramp-up in the next month. Um, it looks like Senate Democrats are setting up J- June to be a decisive month, or at least a very eventful month when it comes to democracy reform and the filibuster. Yeah,
0: Schumer, has, Schumer just put... Um... SB1 on the schedule, didn't he? Just right Right. after this happened.
1: Yeah. And he said he's going to bring it to the floor uh, the last week in June. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he set up what looks like votes on um, the Equality Act and background checks and maybe some other things that might get blocked before then. So it it looks like after spending April and May sort of, you know, pursuing bipartisanship on some of these sort of uh, smaller board bills, that June is going to be the month where things come to a head. So, you know, the reason I say the jury's out is that by the end of June, we could have passed S1 and, and reformed the filibuster to do so. And in that case, I would say Democrats would definitely be ahead of the pace of 2009 and, are, and do seem to be learning the lessons. So, you know, and then they would still have, you know, reconciliation process and infrastructure to go in the fall. Um, so, you know, the other big thing that's coming in the fall is there's going to be a debt ceiling showdown and there's going to be a government funding fight, which could be a disaster or could be an opportunity to. To do big things as well, so there's a lot of variables out there. Um, but it is harder to learn the lessons than people think. It's just like you know you're playing baseball or something, and you know you you see a curveball, and you're like, oh, okay, I know what that curveball looks like. I'm totally learned my lesson. I'm gonna hit it next time. And then it comes again, and even though you know what it looks like, and you know what you should do, you still quite can't quite do it. You know, it's it's harder than it than it seems to learn the lessons, even if you know you should be learning them. Um, and so, I think the jury is is still out there for Democrats. Well,
0: the the on the filibuster, there's this sort of, um, y- you know, you have you have said uh, before publicly several times now. Y- y- you're sort of a. Um, Determined optimist on this front. You have said the, the the quest to reform or get rid of the filibuster is happening in phases. And sort of everybody's got this idea basically that like Joe Manchin loves bipartisanship or says he does, or and so we have to basically go through this bit of theater where Democrats put things forward and Republicans demonstrate that they're not going to cooperate. They demonstrate it publicly and clearly enough that Joe Manchin (laughs) sees it and, and recognizes it and realizes that there's no progress possible without the filibuster, decides he wants progress more than he wants the filibuster and budges on this. That's kind of the theory of the case, but it's, This weird situation where everybody's talking about that being the theory of the case, (laughs) you know, like (laughs) Manchin himself has surely read in a dozen articles that that's the theory of the case and that he's going to learn that lesson and that's what's going to happen. So it's just all so, it just all seems so surreal from the outside. Like who does Manchin genuinely doubt that Republicans are going to bottle everything up. And now, uh, you know, like now they're filibustering the January 6th commission, which Manchin specifically Mm -hmm. said is inexcusable. So insofar as that is the theory of the case, and that is the fate, we're on this phased (laughs) approach, right? It seems like the phase where Republicans demonstrate that they're not going to cooperate is like done. We demonstrated that. So Do we see signs of the next phase?
1: Well, yes and no. I mean, it's it's uh, I hate I'm sorry. I keep like I keep giving these equivocal answers, but it's part of the nature of the beast when you're dealing with the Senate. Um, You know, I think that we've started that phase of of seeing obstruction happen. I mean, Manchin has said this filibuster alone against the January 6th commission bill wasn't enough for him to decide to, to, you know, reform the filibuster. Um, And I think that what you're going to see in June is is additional filibusters, um, you know, mentioned came out in support of the PRO Act, a big, you know, pro-union bill. Um, maybe that will be one of the things that gets blocked. So I think it's, it's we are now firmly in this phase. And the reason it's necessary is that, you know, listen, I mean, filibuster reform is a momentous change. I obviously think it needs to happen. You think it needs to happen. About a lot of your listeners do. But, but it is a big, big change. It would be the biggest change to the Senate's rules, arguably ever, um, but definitely since 1917. And so, you know. To, make, to, to get to a level where members are comfortable making a change of that magnitude, they do need to feel like they have exhausted all other options. Now, obviously, that runs up against the fact that we don't have much time and we need to pass these things very quickly. And so that's the delicate balancing act that someone like uh, Senator Schumer has to pull off, which is how do you do enough sort of, you know, it's an educational process. How do you, how do you help them you know, go through these life experiences of having Republicans <laughs> well, block it. I mean, for so someone like, like me, it's like an after-school special for senators. Like, but you know, they've, been, like, they've been watching that after-school special for
0: a fucking decade now. Like, it's, at, this yeah. is what's baffling. Like this this month is going to teach them what the past decade didn't. Like, it's it just seems well, so. Here's, arbitrary. here's the thing.
1: Here, here's the additional ingredient you have to throw into the mix, which is that you have to you have to throw in a healthy dose of of vanity here. Of course. Which which means that, like, senators actually think that they can be the ones to overcome this polarized era that we find ourselves in and break through the polarization and be the ones to craft these big bipartisan deals. I don't think very many senators still think that, but I think to a certain extent, Joe Manchin still does. He gave this one interview to CNN about the lesson that he took away from January 6th, and he seemed very sincerely to believe that the lesson for him to take away was that he needed to do bipartisanship to show the country that it was still possible for Republicans and Democrats to come together. Um, My takeaway was that the Republicans are an irretrievably radical party and that you is incumbent on democrats to do everything we can to save our democracy um before they potentially take back the majority in 2022 but manchin had a different conclusion i think he sincerely believes that and so so you think yes, he, he does, just
0: you think he cuz this is one of the big sort of ongoing debates is like what's in manchin's head you think he is sincere about these things he's saying about bipartisanship, that that it's possible that he thinks he can pull it off, that he thinks it's still a possibility. You think like at night when he's looking at himself in the mirror, brushing his teeth, he really sincerely believes those things.
1: Yeah, I think he I think he's the hero of his own narrative and I think he genuinely believes that he can pull this off. Um, you know, I mean look, when when Reed was in was in in the Senate and I was working for him, you know, Manchin was very critical of Reed and thought he was too hard on Republicans. And that, you know, if Reed hadn't been such a mean, mean guy to Mitch McConnell a bunch of times, that there were opportunities for bipartisanship that he could have helped forge. I mean, I think this is something he's he has long believed. But here's the thing is that nobody likes to look like a fool. And, you know, at a certain he's point. He's setting himself you know, up to, I mean, this is one of the crazy things. Is, is like every time yeah. he says,
0: I can do bipartisanship and then Republicans kick sand in his face, he looks like a fool. Like he seems like he's purposefully setting himself up to look like a fool.
1: Absolutely. And then the question is, what does he do at yeah, that how point? Do you back and out? that's what we don't quite know yet. Exactly. And so, you know, he's he's made some pretty um, definitive statements. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Like if, but,
0: if this <laughs> if this is the, the game and he's in some sense, aware of it, why is he seem to be going out of his way to make these categorical statements? He seems to be making it very, very difficult for himself to back out of this ever. Why is he doing that?
1: Well, right. They're not quite categorical. You know, even in his op-ed, he he sort of said to Republicans, you have a responsibility, you know, to come forward and and engage here. Um, So, you know, if they don't, he can, he can put the blame on them. I think the reason you do it is that you wanna demonstrate that you really, really, really didn't want to make the change. Um, I don't think this is gonna go down as a flip-flop. I think this is gonna go down as an evolution that will be applauded not just by the left but by a broad range of centrist and never trump commentators mm. who've come to embrace the need of for filibuster reform. I mean, you have David Frum in the Atlantic writing about the need for it. You've got David Brooks talking about oh, it You've my got goodness. Jennifer Rubin. So, yeah, I mean, you know, so it's not who who's going to be mad when he flip-flops right. I guess is the question. It's Republicans will yell and scream about it, but you know, he will be hailed as, you know, a as this you know, being in the category of a thoughtful evolution of somebody who really was committed to the Senate and, and the filibuster and did everything he could to resist it. But, you know, simply Republicans made it impossible for him. And so I think that's that's the path there. Why,
0: uh, why, why, why we're peering into people's minds? M- again, like this strategy and all these dynamics are being discussed very publicly. So it's not, like, it's not like Manchin's not aware of them. It's not like McConnell's not aware of them. So why if Mitch McConnell knows that Manchin really wants bipartisanship and it wouldn't hardly take anything to keep him on the hook, why is McConnell b- trying to <laughs> just demonstrating as clearly as possible to Manchin that he's not going to help? You know what I mean? Like, it just seems like it wouldn't take much for Manchin for McConnell to keep Manchin sort of baited on the hook and he's not even making an, the mildest effort to do so.
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean, there, there, there's a lot of thinking about McConnell that, that, that tends to be a little bit too theoretical because, you know, McConnell could do a lot of things that theoretically would be smart for him in the long game, right? Here's a, He prides himself on playing the long game. He called his memoir, was titled The Long Game. Um, but the thing is that actually when you look at it and look at the record, McConnell really hasn't done anything that has gone against what the Republican base wanted since 2010 when he endorsed a centrist Republican candidate in Kentucky's Republican Senate primary, a guy named Trey Grayson, and went all in for Grayson, and then got humiliated when Rand Paul beat McConnell's favorite candidate in the 2010 Kentucky Senate primary. And since that point, McConnell has hewed to whatever the base wants to do at every major juncture. This is clouded by the fact that sometimes there's there's always a wave of coverage and speculation that talks about maybe this is when McConnell is going to you know break from Trump or this or that. He did kind of gesture that way
0: right after the insurrection.
1: You know, he didn't he, he did sort. Of, yeah, that's right. And there was a New York Times story that said, you know, McConnell's talking about getting rid of Trump, but then what did he do? He voted to protect Trump in the impeachment. So you know, it, it's it is sort of a parlor game, but if if you want to, you know, if you want to know where I put my money, it's always on McConnell doing what the base wants. In this case, the base wants there to be no commission. Trump wants there to be no commission. You know, from a cold political perspective, you could even argue that it's better for McConnell's chance of taking back the majority in 2022 for there to be no commission. So yeah, I, I think it's 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 not super smart strategically, it certainly does seem to have just what Manchin has said since the vote. um, It seems to sort of set him off. Um, But I think that McConnell, first of all, just really doesn't like to hew far to to get any distance between himself and the base. Um, And maybe he really just thinks that this is better for them in 2022 um, to not have a commission.
0: Yeah, it does seem like the only thing that ever saves Democrats is... Republicans overreaching (laughs) and stepping on themselves. (laughs) That's the that's the one thing you can rely on. So Manchin, in some world, I guess, I kind of get. He's from a red state. His personal history is, you know, he sort of prides himself on being a negotiator and all this kind of stuff. And he's got his own kind of mansion mythology in his head and and I guess I kind of get all that as much as it frustrates me, but what is going on with Kirsten Cinema? <laughs> Expl- explain Kirsten Cinema to, to our listeners. It, 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 she seems, I guess I've just never, I never heard or read an even remotely plausible explanation for what her whole deal is. Do you have a sense of it?
1: I actually think that her hers may just simply be a case of having, um, miscalculated a little (laughs) bit. Um, look, I think that prior to this year, a, a pretty reliable way to get the, you know, garlands and plaudits of the centrist beltway crowd, um, and the love of the Sunday show circuit was to oppose filibuster reform. Um, and so I think that, you know, as trying to position herself as something, I think, I think her overriding strategic goals to try to, you know, position herself in, in the John McCain maverick um, legacy being from Arizona and all that. Um, you know, this, this, she is a person who used to be a member of the Green yeah. Party. So it is always a little bit of a stretch, um, you know, to, to take that to accept that this is sincere, but let's, for the sake of argument, assume that somewhere in recent years, she had a ideological conversion that, you know makes her now want to be a centrist. Converted to centrism. <laughs> so, yeah, so let's... It's highly implausible, but yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, whatever. But like, for the sake of argument, let's say it's sincere. You know, I think that that's, that's, you know, she, she wants to do that and she wants to be hailed as a institutionalist by, you know, the Chuck Todd's of the world. Um, but I think it was a miscalculation because those, you know, the centrist brain just isn't there anymore. Yeah, um, well, like who? You know, who, I mean, who are like, you
0: playing to anymore? There's that's, exactly it's there's up. no
1: constituency for for filibuster defense anymore. I think that's largely a function of how radical the Republican Party has become. I think McConnell has lost a lot of his shine, and you know, he used to do a really good job of sort of dressing up his obstruction in these institutional myths, and I think that's come off a lot since the Trump era. Um, so, you know, but yeah, there's just no constituency for what she's selling right now. You've seen her approval rating drop in Arizona. Um, a lot of that may be due to her vote against the minimum wage that got a lot of attention. But, you know, I can tell you one thing, which is that it is not a senator's goal to spend the first year of a new administration having their approval rating tank in their home state. So whatever (laughs) she's doing is not.
0: Yeah, she, I mean, you could, I guess you could just say she, she misread the room badly but she seems having done so now to just be kind of doubling down on it curtsying to to you know while she while she kills things and just very she seems to be going out of the out of her way to be antagonistic
1: she could lose a primary in Arizona. There are credible primary cha- challengers in Arizona who could both beat her in a primary and then win the state. Um, someone like Ruben Gallego in in, in uh, Congress, you know, no one could beat Manchin in a primary in West Virginia. Or and if they did, they would absolutely lose the seat. So that's a different story. But you know, Sinema can't claim to be the only Democrat who can hold that seat. There are, are viable Democrats. There's a relatively deep bench in Arizona. So she's putting herself at risk of actually alienating her allies and inviting a primary challenge. She's not up until 2024. So it's not a super imminent prospect. But, you know, that's just another way in which I think she really did just kind of miscalculate here and is going to have to find a way to climb down off this off this limb.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's pretty historic, a pretty historic misreading of the room. (laughs) You get elected for one term as a Democrat and your legacy is, oh, I Ensured that democracy would fall apart, and and then got booted. That was that was me in the Senate. Um, one one thing that I feel like you'll have some unique insight on, and it's a it's an ongoing fight, and it's a fight on Twitter every day, is sort of between, you know, there's people who say Schumer needs to get Manchin on board. Schumer needs to bust some heads or make some speeches or threaten some pork or threaten committee assignments or do, you know, BLBJ. This is the, <laughs> how many times have you heard this? BLBJ toward, toward these recalcitrant senators and get them on board. And the fact that he's not doing that is evidence that Democrats actually don't want anything to happen and they're all bought and sold, corporate, whatever, whatever's. Um, so what, leverage does Schumer have over Manchin? I know we, we talked about this on Twitter and, and you know, we like, it's not our job, but, but I feel like this is, this is something people want to know. Is it true that there's, that Schumer could be twisting his arm if he could, or is Schumer basically, I mean, my sense is that Manchin's ego is so huge. His vanity is so all consuming That if you go up directly against him and try to sort of punish him or smack him into into behaving, that is precisely what will trigger that guy's vanity. And he will, you know, take great pride in defying it. And that would just like trigger all the wrong dynamics. But I don't know. I'm not up there. I don't see into either of their heads. So what's your take on this? Like is Schumer, could Schumer be going harder on Manchin than he is?
1: Right, right. We were having this discussion on Twitter the other day. This is like the, the Green Lantern theory of politics, right? Which is if you just a fun term. That I think wanted. Yeah, I think like as Matt who introduced to and Brendan Nyhan, I think turned it into the Green Lantern theory of the presidency. Right. It's the idea that you know in, individuals can rise up against and you know defy the the structural or you know forces of the universe um, to to make great things happen. And as you pointed out, you know this is something that people said with Obama all the time: "Why can't he?" You know you know, to d- deliver all these big things that he's promised. Um, if only he, you right. know, why can't he make Joe Lieberman be a less horrible person? Yeah, that's right. So here, so here's the thing. I think, I think that there is, um, you know, and, and as you pointed out, you know, it's, it is unfalsifiable as an argument. You could always just say, well, if they'd only tried harder and they pushed harder, they did this, done this or that. And so it's a difficult thing to deal with. But I think that, you know, given the stakes of this issue, it is really important to sort of surround it with as many facts as you can to try to get an answer there. And, you know, I would say, you know, a real example of Green Lanternism was Joe Biden on the campaign trail saying he was gonna ha- cause Republicans to have an epiphany and deliver all these Republican votes and usher in a new era of bipartisan deal making. That was Green Lanternism because that was going up against structural forces that are causing Republicans to, you know, be polarized, to not want to deal, that are larger than any individual can deal with. I would argue. On the flip side, that expecting leaders and a president to be able to deliver a small handful number a small handful of votes from their own party for bills that are broadly popular with the American people is not Green Lanternism and is a more reasonable expectation of leaders and so then you know you you say so what's the leverage so this is where i, I don't want to be evasive but the thing is that's just sort of what a leader figures out you know it's like i worked for harry Reid, but i wasn't harry reed you know what i mean like reed's unique skill as a leader was to figure out what it was that could get a person to yes and sometimes that is twisting arms And sometimes it's just persuasion.
0: They don't have earmarks anymore, right? That that was a huge tool for that purpose.
1: Right. But they have, I mean, you know, one of the things they have is, you know, the, the massive public pressure of the fact that you have commentators across the political spectrum begging senators to save our democracy here and advocating for filibuster reform. And so what I would stipulate is that under these conditions, it is possible for a very skilled leader to find a way to get Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema to yes. And we may not be able to say, well, you should call this donor in West Virginia or this, you know, interest group, and they'll be the ones to, to twist his arm and, and get him to yes, or you know, this friend of his from childhood who will be the one to persuade him. You know what I mean? Like, we don't know what these things are, but but that's, you know, what is the marginal value of a leader if they're not don't have more insight into what can move Manchin than you and me talking here on this podcast or people on Twitter. Well, he's not running you know, again also, makes, right? I mean, he's not running for the he's Senate not, again. Well, that's, that's people... Do we know that or... Yeah, people have different... Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people speculate that he won't. The reason is, you know, he he barely won in 2018. He doesn't and his state seem to like 30 the points. Senate either. Yeah, exactly. But but that would sort of cut, I think, in favor of being willing to do reform because why not, you know? Um, why why sort of be the guy to... to Kill Biden's agenda on your way out the door and then just peace out. You know what I mean? Like why not just well, say no? He, he might
0: run for governor, is one thing I hear. And if you're gonna run for governor of West Virginia, you need that Mavericky, whatever.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. But but you know, I think that the same reason he might not win as governor is the same he might not win in the Senate because it's a statewide election. His state is Trumpy by 30 points. Um, and he barely squeaked by in 2018. So so all that is to say, I I don't think that. I'm arguing that this is an easy thing to do. Um, but you know, Lyndon Johnson, when they brought the 1964 Civil Rights Act to the floor, they didn't have the votes for it. It was filibustered for three months through, you know, a consistent process of working with members, listening to what they wanted and applying pressure to strategic points, they got the votes for it. I mean, read Got the votes, sixty votes for the health care bill. Um, you know, the last vote was Ben Nelson of Nebraska. Reid didn't have his vote until after he brought the bill to the floor. The famous Cornhus- cornhusker kickback was a deal that was cut while the bill was on the floor. Um, you know, so you, you find a way. And I think that right now, I think Schumer is doing a good job. I think the, this filibuster on the one six commission, um, you know, setting a clear deadline for S one in June. I, you can see the parameters start to, you know, he's sort of setting boundaries and sort of creating a cauldron of pressure around Manchin. Um, so I would argue that I think he's he's doing a good job. But, you know, we're going to have to see how this comes out. But I think, you know, between a president and Biden who ran on being a dealmaker and bragging about all the deals he could cut and Schumer, who wants to be LBJ, the two of them working together um, really should be able to find a way to get to get Manchin to yes.
0: Well, and it's the weird thing is like. If you're a vain person, I mean, Mansions the pivot point now. He could single handedly save U.S. democracy. What better exactly. way to flatter one's own vanity than to be literally be a hero?
1: So that's right. And it's not just the left that will that will congratulate him. I mean, it will be David Brooks writing in his exactly. column. You know, I mean, this is a very it's a very big opportunity to be a hero who will go down in history as as having done a good thing. I mean, this is going to stand up well. Um, to history if he shifts in favor of reform to help these democracy reforms to pass.
0: One of the more cynical takes on all this is that one of the reasons Democrats like some Democratic senators like the filibuster is that they probably don't have 50 votes for a lot of these things, and they don't want the awkward – They don't want that to be known. (laughs) They don't want that to be recorded. How much of this sort of big, bold agenda that we're talking about, you know, like people say, like you get rid of the filibuster and then, oh, it's the PRO Act and, you know, SB1 and this and that. How, How much of that bold agenda do you think really when the rubber hits the road has all 50 Democratic votes?
1: Um, I think a, a fair amount of it will. I think that, you know, the thing, there's a lot of talk that's like, oh, what has 50 votes? But I, I think that's the wrong metric. I think you should look at what has like 46-ish votes, um, because bills don't often don't have the votes until they get to the floor. Um, and I would also look at like what bills, you know, have like 46, but like no hard no's against them, you know? And so I would throw the PRO Act into that category. It's, I think it actually has 46 votes. And of the outstanding Democrats, nobody's come out and said, absolutely, I'm not for it. So that to me says, you know, that is a situation that is ripe for, you get that bill to the floor, you make whatever deals you need to make to get those last four Democrats, like that's a bill that's going to pass. You know, I would put S1 in that category. You've got 49 co-sponsors out of 50. Manchin has uh, said he has problems with it, but he also co-sponsored the exact same bill the previous Congress. So I don't think there's any, there's no showstopper there that, yeah, that's like, prevents him from getting to yes. So I would look at the range of things that are, you know, maybe 45 plus, um, with nobody like campaigning against them. And I would say all of those things are, are possible. The DREAM Act, um, which probably already has 40, 50, I'd say some version of background checks, um, obviously the voting rights, pre-clearance, and those those things, a lot of big important stuff. And then I think, you know, on on energy and, and climate, the question is what's gonna fall out of reconciliation? Um, what will be deemed, you know, that it can't comply with the rules by the parliamentarian, and I think you'll have a fair amount of dropping. They call them bird droppings, um, uh, because it's the bird rule that that causes them to fall out of the of the package. So you'll probably have a, a fair amount of bird droppings to sweep up on climate change that you'll want to get through. Um, you know, so it's it's a lot of stuff, and I think it's it's you know voting rights alone to me is enough reason to do it. But I think that there's a lot of other stuff, paid family leave, which got ruled out of last reconciliation bill, maybe a compromise on the minimum wage. You know, there's a lot of stuff that you can get through if if they go nuclear relatively soon and in a way that allows them to have time to to pass all those things. D.C. statehood, by the way, I would say, is another critically important bill that has an uphill climb, to be sure, but also is is in the mid to high 40s already. And given the stakes, um, I think would have a, a decent chance of passage as well.
0: Here's one of the overarching questions that I I think and a bunch of people have, and it's probably unanswerable on some level, but it's just it really seems like U.S. senators, particularly Democratic senators, are in a, a bubble <laughs> that is nigh impenetrable. Like they just... Like there are things that among sort of your politically engaged, generally politically engaged lefty have now become sort of sort of bog obvious conventional wisdom, you know, like that the that the Republicans are all about obstruction and, um, you know, that the that the filibusters reactionary just on and on that just don't seem to penetrate the U.S. Senate. And I guess I'm just sort of. I'm just sort of curious about the life world of a Democratic senator. Who are they talking to and where are they getting the reinforcement for these sort of antiquated views that they cling to? Like if they if they turn, tune into a progressive websites or uh, cable channels or anything, they're going to see <laughs> arguments against themselves. <laughs> they're going to be pelted by arguments against themselves, so somehow they're Somehow they're remaining immune. And I guess I'm just wondering, like, what is the kind of epistemic bubble that they've created and how it are they maintaining it against, you know, in the face of such in the face of such a torrent of criticism?
1: I mean, the answer is the Senate, you know, I mean, it's it is its own self-protecting entity and it it, it actually sort of takes a very active role in self-protection, you know, senators are, as soon as they start, you know, orientation, um, they're sort of told a lot of these myths about the institution and a lot of them come over from the house. And so they're it's, it's sort of defined to them in, in contrast to the house. And it's said, you know, this is a place where we're supposed to be slow. We're supposed to be frustrating. This is the whole purpose of the institution. And this is what, and in fact, this is what makes it great is what they're told. Um, and so it's it creates this perverse dynamic where arguments from outside only reinforce their sort of defensiveness about the Senate because they're immediately become almost brainwashed into believing that the outside world doesn't understand this complex and beautiful institution. And, you know, if the, if the president is arguing against them, well, that's the executive branch. And the whole point of the Senate is to be a check on the executive. So we shouldn't let them determine what we do as senators, you know, um, and, and, you know, and, it, and it, there's a grain of truth to that, like we were talking about before, but but it's become vastly exaggerated. Um, you know, it's not the Senate's supposed to be thoughtful and craft thoughtful solutions, but it's not supposed to just not pass any. <laughs> yes, solutions. It's not supposed to not do and anything. There's no, the- exactly. there's no
0: theory of government that results in that being the that being the conclusion. What
1: you do see, though, is you see a lot of the younger senators, I think, are less, less. Um, yeah, like Brian Schott's, you know, shots, you know like
0: Brian Schott's came into the Senate and heard the myths like everybody else. But he just looked around and he's like, oh, we're not doing anything. We're not getting anything done. It's like it's it's
1: possible for them to realize it. That's right, because the big difference with the younger crowd is that they haven't experienced any success in the Senate. All they've seen is an institution that's failed. And so it's, it's the older folks who can recall an era where they did actually get things done on a bipartisan basis. There aren't that many of them left, and that's why you, you know, that's why the caucus quickly got to like 45, 46, 47 in support of filibuster reform, because it is, you know, much younger and and much more composed of folks who are ready for change. Um, but it is still folks who who can sort of recall an era where they did cut this deal and the filibuster, they did overcome a filibuster and yada yada, um, that that still are are sometimes susceptible to this, to this myth making.
0: The GOP, I mean, there's a certain a uh, uh, view out there, which I hold on every other day or so, which says that the GOP has become so homogenous ideologically, um, uh, racially, et cetera, and so radicalized against democracy, really, against the Democratic Party and democracy, there's just a, a, a notion that there is no rule-based system that can continue working if one of two parties has decided it doesn't favor democracy anymore and feels no is just not restrained at all by the rules especially by unspoken you know sort of unwritten norms like if you just break free of those entirely and become sort of the purely nihilistic party that's purely about about power is there any set of rules that can make that work? Or, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, is, is it possible to sort of reform our way past this? Or uh, do you think that, like, we're sort of headed for some sort of reckoning regardless?
1: Um, yeah. I mean, look, not to end on a depressing <laughs> note, but I, the answer is I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I don't know. And I'm not going to sit here and, and tell your listeners that I think filibuster reform is going to solve all of our problems, and especially these larger structural problems that you're talking about. However, I will say that I think it is sort of the necessary, if not sufficient condition to solving our problems. I think that you, you can't solve any of them If you don't reform the filibuster because you're not going to be able to pass things like s1 and voting rights uh, and all these other bills that i think could pass if we got rid of the filibuster so it's it is a step in the right direction and, it's, and we're certainly not gonna solve them if we don't do it. Um, I come back to DC statehood, I think DC statehood is a critically important reform that if we are able to get rid of the filibuster, we should put all our effort into passing because that will address some of the deeper structural inequities of the Senate, especially when it comes to how underrepresented non-white Americans are in the Senate. Um, So I think it opens the door to the possibility that we can pass the reforms we need to to fix these deeper structural issues. Um, And I don't think we have a lot of hope of solving them if we don't do it. But um, but it's yeah, it's going to be a long uphill fight. And I think that it's going to be it's going to be a struggle. But like you look at the vote today on the bipartisan commission, I mean, on the January 6th commission, it was a bipartisan vote. You know, you had seven Republicans join with Democrats to support the commission, but it failed because you didn't get to 60. So if you're gonna sort of start to draw this party back into the norm of legislating and actually start to have at least a little bit of bipartisanship, the only way you're gonna do it is if you get rid of the filibuster, because you're just not gonna get to 60 in today's Senate at any time in the foreseeable future. But you could get to 52, 53, 54 on a lot of different things. And so if we're gonna draw this party back into the arena And get them, you know, to not be completely off in in crazy land, you have to make it easier to pass things and make it easier, you know, for for the gears of legislating to actually turn again.
0: It's ironic that the filibuster, um, which, you know, which Manchin says is preserving bipartisanship is arguably preventing it, preventing the Republican Party from stepping down off this ledge. That's right. Thank you so much for coming on uh, and and helping me plumb the mysteries of this very worst of the world's legislative institutions. Absolutely, man. It was fun to talk.